The What Are We Doing podcast and the Aquatic Biosphere Project acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory and respects the histories, languages, and cultures of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and all First Peoples of Canada, whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Battle stations, everyone! What's the one thing that humans are taught in kindergarten but have never truly mastered? Sharing. You know what's really difficult to share? Water. Water plays such a pivotal role in our daily lives. Everything from our economies, our cultures, our everyday daily hygiene regimens. We all rely on water. So when you don't have access to it, you get pretty frustrated. Also, it can be deadly. So what happens if another group takes away your water? How are you going to feel? And what do we do in these situations when others are denied access to the water that they feel is rightfully theirs? Or if we're having different disputes between different countries militarily over the water that we're allowed to travel in? Well, you're in the right place because today we're talking about water diplomacy, conflict, and sovereignty. What we can do, what we're currently doing, and what we can expect in the future. Today, we get it straight from the experts. We speak with a professor in water law and diplomacy who works all around the globe and a professor who studies Canadian Arctic security and defense. All this and more on today's episode of the What Are We Doing podcast. Air. Wasser. Bunny. G. Nippy. What are we doing? And how can we do better? Your one-stop shop. For everything water-related, from discussing water, its use, and the organisms that depend on it. For all the global issues that you really never knew all had to do with water. I'm your host, David Evans, from the Aquatic Biosphere Project, and I just want to ask you something. What are we doing, and how can we do better? Water has played a key role in many conflicts throughout human history. When you look at a map, many countries' borders actually follow along water bodies. Either it's the ocean as one side, or it's a river, or a basin as the other side. They really help to delineate differences between countries and people, but also they bring us together. And it's these shared resources that often cause tensions to form, or cooperation to form as well. There's examples of these conflicts dating way back in human history, as far back as 2500 BC in ancient Mesopotamia. There was two cities, Uma and Lagash, and they both shared access to the Euphrates-Tigris River Basin. This is the area where currently we have Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. Now this area is very, very dry. So these two city-states, Uma and Lagash, 
were actually competing for this access to water. So watering their agricultural plants, the irrigation, basically their entire livelihoods depended on their access to this water. And guess what? 2500 BC till now, there's still conflict in this area. When there's an area that has a large population, but a limited amount of water, tensions will rise because we all need access to it. So what do you do when you have this limited amount of water that needs to be shared between lots of different groups of people or different countries or different cities? Who do you call? How does that song go? When there's water stress in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? Susanna Schmeier. My name is Susanna. I work for IHE Delft, which is a UNESCO-affiliated institute for water education in the Netherlands. All right. Clearly, that is not the music from a very famous movie franchise. But come on. Copyrights aside, it's still pretty infectious. So, Dr. Susanna Schmeier, she's an associate professor of waterline diplomacy at IHE Delft. Susanna leads the Water, Peace, and Security Partnership and works around the globe looking at potential water conflicts between different groups, countries, organizations, you name it. So if you don't believe me yet that this is still an issue currently, let's hear it from Susanna. When we think about water, we think about like rivers, streams, or the water that comes from the tap. But if we go a little bit beyond that, we can see that it's very much related to security issues to conflict, but also to cooperation and peace. We are seeing this, for example, in Mali, in the inner Niger Delta, where for some years there have been violent conflicts with quite a few people dying between farmers, herders and fishermen that compete over the same and increasingly variable amount of water from the Niger River. We're also seeing this, for example, between Ethiopia and Egypt on the Nile where the dam building of Ethiopia has caused severe concerns in, in Egypt that fears for its own water security and is therefore opposing the dam. So we're seeing that around the world, that it can lead to, to tensions, to conflict. But at the same time, these conflicts are prominent, and that's what the media speaks about. And we've all seen in the media these reports on water wars that might be around the corner or water being the source of wars in the 21st century. But if we take a bit of a closer look, we see that, yes, there are such water conflicts, but they're by far outweighed by water cooperation. Yeah, I know. Back to the old music. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll hear it again later in the episode. So water cooperation is actually really quite high, which is great news. Hopefully we don't have any water wars on the horizon anytime soon. But there's still going to be those instances where we need someone to come in and help us figure out how to get to a resolution and how to reach an agreement that we're both going to be happy with. And that's where Dr. Susanna comes in. So Dr. Susanna, can you tell us a bit about what you do, what this water diplomacy concept is? Water diplomacy is actually quite a new term, but not necessarily a new phenomenon. It basically refers to the use of diplomatic, so foreign policy means, in order to address conflicts or potential conflicts over water, mainly between different countries. And the idea behind that or the reason why suddenly diplomats and foreign policymakers become involved in something that's otherwise perceived as very technical and something that's dealt with by, by engineers, by data people, by people from ministries of water environment, is because 
of the risk that water tensions, disagreements over water spill over into more broad relations between countries, right? We've seen a deterioration of relations, for example, between Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, when in the 2010s, they were uh, in a disagreement over Rogun Dam, a large dam, in fact, the world's highest dam that Tajikistan is building on the river that the countries share. That had repercussions on trade relations, political relations, remittances. Then in order to prevent such conflicts from escalating and ensure that broader bilateral relations or even regional stability are not affected, diplomats get involved in these processes that are otherwise very technical. But that has, in spite of the newness of the word water diplomacy, actually happened since a long time already. I mean, we have examples from the 1950s, 1960s already where diplomats negotiated over water that they shared with neighboring countries. Okay, I just looked up the Rogun Dam in Tajikistan. So they're currently building it. They started pouring concrete this summer. Now, it's supposed to be the world's highest, tallest dam, 335 meters tall. To put that in perspective, the Hoover Dam is 220 meters tall, two-thirds the size of this dam. This is a huge, huge project. So when you're negotiating that with another country that's also affected by the water that comes out from underneath that dam, yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. So water diplomacy, it's nothing new. But it definitely does require a steady hand, someone who knows how to open these doors, bring them to the table so you can actually have these types of discussions. So I guess, Susanna, what does this look like from your perspective, from where you sit in these negotiations? How do these negotiations typically work and how do you bring people in together so they can actually have these discussions? I unfortunately can't give you a lot of details as this is something that by the nature of the process tends to happen behind closed doors. But yeah, I'll, I'll try to share a few thoughts. So basically, water diplomacy is about bringing the different parties together around the table. First step usually being to create a joint understanding of what the problem actually is. So is it that one country wants to build a dam and has very good intentions doing so because it actually needs the electricity? Like if you look at the Nile, Ethiopia, there's a reason why Ethiopia wants to build the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. It's because it needs electricity to power the country's economic development, to lift people out of poverty, like kids who go to school and who need to study in the evening to provide them with electricity to do so. So it's a very good reason to build the dam, but to at least create a mutual understanding between this thinking and the thinking of a downstream country, in that case, Egypt, where there are huge fears about the impacts in terms of less water being available, that potentially affects affecting water supply to the people or affecting agricultural production and as a consequence, food security of people. So first of all, creating a joint understanding what a specific issue of contention means for the different parties. Then it's a lot about trying to share data and information, make countries open up their data books and share information on river flow, on river quality, or whatever the issue might be. But then moving from an understanding of things being a zero-sum game, what one party uses from the river, the water or the fish resources in the lake or whatever it might be, that not being available to the other party and therefore it being kind of a, a cake that if I eat the bigger piece, you will get the smaller piece. Moving away from that and moving towards a, a positive sum game where the idea is to actually not so much look into, for example, the volume of water that's being shared. You get 50%, I get 50%, but more look at what are we actually doing with our 50%. 
So what Susanna is talking about here is, can we look at these projects through a different lens? Are there ways that we can get multiple benefits for all of the different parties? And we just aren't looking at it that way yet. So maybe there's a way to design the dam so that we have less flood risk lower down. Is there a way that we can have aquaculture? Or is there a way that we could sell the electricity that's generated by this dam to the other country at a discounted rate? What are the ways that we can increase everyone's slice of the pie and make sure that we're maximizing everyone's benefits? Now, is it just me or does this seem like everyone knows this and should be working towards this? Why do we need to get diplomats involved? One country might often not trust the other country when... For example, we had this in, in the case of Afghanistan and Iran. Iran has been claiming for many years that the water that Afghanistan provides as the upstream country to downstream Iran is not up to what they're supposed to provide according to a really old and not very functional treaty that they have. Afghanistan at the same time is saying, well, we are actually providing that water, but climate change makes it more and more difficult because the river doesn't actually hold as much water as we're supposed to provide. And by the way, we don't have measurement stations anyway because of the destruction of the war. So we don't actually know how much is, is flowing across the border. And that you can imagine would, is difficult enough for technical people to talk about, but then bring political tensions, relations, the overall regional setting in, and things get very tricky and ultimately need the involvement of diplomats and other people experienced in dispute resolution and negotiation and mediation. Yep, point taken. All right, Dr. Susanna, you'll be my first call if I ever need a water resolution specialist to come in and help me out. All right, Susanna, are we missing anything right now? What else do we need to be considering? Also discussing the mitigation of impacts, because no water project can be built without any environmental impacts. And these environmental impacts obviously also have um, socioeconomic consequences for people depending on the water. But looking into how these impacts can be mitigated. And we are seeing examples around the world where countries have at least tried that. So I'm thinking about the Mekong, for example, where um, Laos... Sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry for the rude interruption. I just feel like I needed to say this. I needed basically to have a world map open in front of me to be able to understand where we were talking about because Dr. Susanna is working in so many places and there's so many conflicts and so many resolutions to work out that we're jumping from country to country, continent to continent. So just for a quick recap, here are the countries that we've already discussed. The conflict between herders and fishermen in Mali in the inner Niger Delta, the creation of the Grand Renaissance Dam by Ethiopia that dams the Nile and affects Egypt's access to water, the Ragoon Dam built by Tajikistan that is affecting Uzbekistan's flow of water, the water flow out of Afghanistan into Iran as it's affected by climate change and lack of monitoring, and now this dam created by Laos on the Mekong River that's affecting downstream Vietnam and Cambodia. Now, if you actually listen to the full interview with Dr. Suzanne, we talk about even more countries around the world. So definitely recommend a world map. All right. Sorry. Back to you, Susanna. Laos is undergoing a huge and very ambitious dam development program on the tributaries to the Mekong, but also on the mainstream. And there was in the early 2000s a, a disagreement over the first mainstream dam that Laos intended to develop. It's called the Sayaburi Dam, where 
no environmental impact mitigation measures were foreseen. But through negotiations between the countries, especially Vietnam and Cambodia being particularly concerned, and through the involvement of a river basin organization, so a, pla a formal platform that brings all the countries together, the design of the dam was changed in the end to account for sediment flushing needs, to make sure that the sediments that the river carries that are crucial for the Mekong Delta are actually making their way downstream but also building in fish migration aid. And most of the Mekong fish are long-distance migratory fish. That fish are able to migrate up and downstream, passing the dam. We'll see to what extent these measures are effective, but I think it's at least a really a sign, a symbol of how countries try to come together and at least mitigate the impacts that the developments in one might have on the other. Wow, turns out environmental impact assessments are actually useful and they're good. Well, when they're actually respected. So that's really good to know. And it's important not to miss out that this isn't only a human issue, but also an environmental issue that we need to take into consideration. So I'm sure that many of you listening must be asking yourself, what about the Russia-Ukraine conflict? What's currently being done about water? Well, you came to the right person to ask. And this is what Dr. Susanna could share when we recorded this interview in March 2022. It's a bit difficult because we are involved in some work on that or where until the recent uh, escalation. So it's a bit difficult to talk about that. But yeah, I mean, water has not played a role there as in triggering the conflict. But of course, water is affected by conflict. I mean, any violent conflict affects water, affects water infrastructure, water quality, water supply to people. And already with the occupation of Crimea, there were some issues coming up with water supply from one part to the other part, which was still is theoretically one, one country being affected by that divide. And there have been mutual accusations by the Russian occupied parts saying that Ukraine didn't supply water as they should have and Ukraine claiming that the Russian occupied parts had cut off the flow of a river that would go to the then Ukrainian part, which would be needed to actually produce the drinking water that would then be supplied to the other side again. Yeah, but uh, it's a bit difficult to, to comment on that. But yeah, maybe just to, to add that the effects of, of armed conflict on water and water infrastructure is, is also something that we're increasingly seeing around the world. I mean, also Yemen, Iraq, and so on, Syria, that, that's often overlooked. Well, this kind of escalation is not being overlooked by our next guest, but his focus on water is a little bit more northern in general. We should be absolutely concerned about the Arctic. The Arctic for Canada is going to be the geographical center of two existential threats to Canadian security. And by existential, I mean the possibility of extreme violence be falling upon Canadian citizens. My name is Rob Hubert. I'm with the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary. I study Arctic security, Arctic sovereignty. And when I say security, let me be clear. I'm talking about security in its most extended of definitions. That means I do look at hard military issues as pertain as we're seeing right now, what's happening between Canada, Russia, and the other Arctic nations. But I also look at environmental security, human security, all these other issues um, that clearly affect the Arctic. Now, you might be asking yourself, why should I care about the Arctic? It's frozen, it's very far away, it doesn't impact me at all. Well. The simple thing is, 
The Arctic is changing drastically. As it changes, it's going to allow access to so many new resources, shipping routes for more and more vessels that frankly just weren't able to smash through the ice before. And as this frozen ocean changes, it's going to affect our relations with our Arctic neighbors, but also international partners. And it's going to change the landscape, quite literally change the global landscape of where ships can go and who's allowed where. So Dr. Rob, do you mind just elaborating a bit more about these two existential threats that we should be really focused on in the Arctic? The first one, of course, is the one that your listeners are probably more aware of, and that's the impacts of climate change. We know that climate change is occurring at a rate roughly three to four times as severe in the Arctic as it is elsewhere. So the Arctic is first and foremost a canary in the mine shaft. But the other factor is, of course, is that the Arctic is ultimately um, interconnected with almost every other type of biological um, uh, climatic system within the international system. What happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic and will be spilling literally into the entire international system. And so, therefore, there is a driving need to understand the processes of which that is occurring. The second existential threat, and it has been made very clear with the actions of Vladimir Putin with his resumption of the uh, 2014 war against Ukraine, and that is, of course, as he's reminded us, that the Russians are an existential threat to Canada. Uh, make no mistake about it, when he is threatening to utilize nuclear weapons against the West, and he has made several statements to that extent, we need to take him very serious on that. Now, what does that have to do with the Arctic? Well, the Russians are truly an Arctic nation. I mean, Canada pretends about being an Arctic nation, but in terms of effort and political focus, it's in our national anthem. We like to think of ourselves, but we, we do that little. The Russians... The entire protection of the Russian geopolitical and geoeconomic capabilities is Arctic-based. And as the relationship with the Russians have deteriorated since 2008, when they first began fighting against possible NATO expansions, and that's the Georgian War, not the Ukrainian War, ever since that point in time, it has been clear that Russia, in fact, is a danger to all Western countries. But in particular, because of our geography, are a threat to Canada. Now, once again, that threat comes in two formats. It does not come in land-based. Let's be very clear on that. We're not talking about a Russian invasion. It's the aerospace capability that the Russians are that poses a threat. But the second component of that that poses a threat is the maritime dimension. Through assistance provided by us, by the Americans, the Norwegians, and the British, they've been very successful in rebuilding a lot of their undersea capability, in particular in new types of threats, such as uh, autonomous underwater vehicles. And so taken in its whole, if you want to talk about where two of the most dangerous threats facing Canadian security are coming from, you have to understand the Arctic and you have to understand the maritime and um, ocean component of it. Well, Rob, that was truly terrifying. All right, so we need to understand the maritime and ocean components of it, do you say? Hmm. Well, everyone, you're in luck. Since my interview with Rob, I put together a little Ocean Sovereignty 101 class. You ready? Let's get into it. Welcome to Ocean Sovereignty 101 with your host, David Evans. 
Between the 1960s and 80s, we realized that we really needed to have a way to govern what happens in the high seas, what happens in international waters, who has sovereignty over what, who has what as part of their international space. So what this led to is the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. Basically, it's a way for countries to be able to share space. So what does this mean? Imagine you have three zones that go out from the low water mark off your country's coast. All right, so let's go visit the first zone. The first 12 nautical miles off of your coastline is what's considered your territorial sea. This zone is where the country has complete sovereignty over the airspace, the entire water column, and anything within the soil or subsoil. So that's all of the industries, fishing, oil and gas, aviation, everything is complete sovereignty of that nation. All right, off to zone two. Welcome to the exclusive economic zone, EEZ. This extends 200 nautical miles out from the coastline. Now remember in zone one, we had complete sovereignty over the airspace, the water column, everything in the soil and subsoil. Now, what we lose when we go out to the EEZ level is that we lose sovereignty over the airspace. So we don't have control over the airspace, and we also don't have control over shipping. So international shipping can still come through, but the country still has complete sovereignty over the economic activities. So oil and gas, fishing, you name it, everything in the subsoil is still sovereignty of the nation. So you can see a trend here. As we get further and further out, we lose more and more sovereignty. All right, time for our last stop before we get to the open high seas. Let's check out Zone 3. Welcome to Zone 3, our most contentious of zones. This is the extended continental shelf. In this zone, you've already lost sovereignty over the airspace and international shipping. Now you lose sovereignty over the water column as well. So this is only sovereignty over the soil and subsoil, nothing else really. Now, why did I say this was contentious? So... Basically, what we're looking at is you can have sovereign rights over the subsoil as far as you can prove that your continental shelf reaches out into the ocean. Now, what's a continental shelf? It's a really great question. Basically, the continental shelf is a portion of the continent that is submerged under a fairly shallow sea. When you look at a map of the bottom of the ocean, there's these really deep, deep sections. And then right along the margins and coastlines, there's these relatively flat-looking shallow areas. If you look at a map of the Atlantic Ocean along eastern Canada, there's this really flat area that goes out quite far into the ocean. So that would be what we'd be trying to consider as our continental shelf. Now where this becomes an issue is the Arctic is basically one giant continental shelf that connects us with Russia, Denmark, Norway, all of the Arctic nations. And this is where we run into trouble in delineating where our continental shelf ends and their continental shelf begins. So Rob, where are we now? Where are we at with the extended continental shelf? Right now, Denmark, Norway, Canada, Russia are all trying to determine what their continental shelf in the Arctic is. The Americans have a continental shelf, but the problem with the Americans is that they never ratified the convention. You have to join the convention before you can acquire the benefit. So the big issue with the Arctic is who gets what within the continental shelf. And that is what we are scientifically and internationally trying to determine. All right. So we're in these negotiations to determine where we have 
sovereignty. Now, what happens when you have a lot of islands? Do you measure your sovereignty from the low tide point on your furthest island or from the main part of the continent? See, there's a little bit of a gray area here. And this gets really important when you start talking about the Northwest Passage. Now, the Northwest Passage is the potential shipping route that many countries are looking at to go above North America, from the Pacific to the Atlantic and vice versa. Now, as sea ice begins to recede, it's potentially becoming navigable by many ships. And this is a bit of a problem for the Canadian government, because what do we consider the Northwest Passage right now, Rob? We say that the Northwest Passage is internal waters. It's internal waters because from a historical perspective, we've always treated it as basically like we would treat Lake Winnipeg or, or any other internal waters. We also sustain that argumentation that the Indigenous people, the Inuit in particular, have lived there from time immemorial. The problem that we face is that until we had the negotiations and the completion of the United Nations on the rights of Indigenous peoples, UNDRIP, International law did not recognize indigenality. In other words, we can say that that was important for us as Canadians, and it is important. But from an international perspective, most countries will shrug their shoulders and say, well, so what? You know, so you've had indigenous people living there. Um, you know, it doesn't make an international legal difference. UNDRIP may, in fact, change that. So with UNDRIP, that may see a much greater international recognition of the fact that indigenality does have a standing within international law and changes it. Now, we'll have to see. The problem that we have with the Northwest Passage is that for it to be a internal waters, you have to have the acceptance of the international community that, in fact, that has always been treated as internal waters. The problem is, is our neighbors to the south don't agree with that. The United States has sent two vessels through the Northwest Passage, one by accident, one by intent, without asking permission. In 1969, 1970, when they sent the Manhattan, which was an ice tanker, through, they very deliberately did it to challenge Canadian sovereignty. The sending of the Polar Sea, an icebreaker that went through in 1985, was not a challenge. They needed to get the ship from uh, Seattle to Thule and back, and they couldn't do it by going through the Panama Canal. And we did all sorts of sort of somersaults to try to figure out a way in which we could say it's still our waters, but the Americans did not go, you know, ultimately because it sets a precedent elsewhere. Now, up until very recently, it was a Canada-U.S. Uh, relations. The Russians weren't going to come over. They didn't because of Cold War and a whole bunch of other reasons. But very few countries had the capability of actually coming into the Northwest Passage outside of the Americans. As the ice melts, the shipping nations have been recognizing that. You know, the Northwest Passage is an international waterway, just like any other water. And the only thing that made it different was the ice. And if the ice is disappearing, it's not internal waters anymore. Now, Canada, of course, will argue, no, it's always been internal waters. So therefore, it remains internal waters. Countries like Singapore, Germany, they've said in the international maritime market, organization, sorry, Canada, you can't claim special status over them. You don't have sovereignty over it. It has to follow international law. Now, have we seen an issue ultimately push it? No. Is it coming? Absolutely. 
So far, we've had a couple of vessels that have actually gone through. We had a cruise ship called the Crystal Serenity that went through in 2016 and in 2017. They did this with consulting and getting approval from the Canadian government. They consulted the Indigenous communities that were along the path of the Northwest Passage that they were following as well. Basically, they followed all the rules and they did a great job of it. Now, if you want the flip side of how this can go, look no further than in the summer of 2020, when COVID was ravaging the world. The Canadian government had said, hey, let's not have any travel within the Northwest Passage. Let's make sure everyone stays safe. Now, there was a New Zealander with a sailboat who said, hey, I want to cross the Northwest Passage. I don't care. You can't stop me. These are international waters. And he successfully crossed, but never asked for permission and now is in litigation with the Canadian federal government. But the problem comes because we never physically stopped them from crossing. So that sets the precedent that they were allowed to cross. Even though we're in litigation, it's really messy. So again, why is this a big deal? Well, I'll turn to Rob once more. Where this is going to be a real issue, there is growing concern amongst the Indigenous populations in terms of what increased shipping would mean. And so we say within Canada, through reconciliation and other means of trying to um, understand and to extend the power that the Indigenous peoples have over their territories, how do we reconcile the fact that if we have someone saying, no, we have the international right to go through because it's an international strait, we have Indigenous communities saying, you know what, we've got some major uh, hunting or fishing going on, we don't want any ships going through at this point in time, then mighty interesting to see how the Canadian government responds to that. You know, will it just basically say, yeah, it's internal waters. We're not going to let you come through and then physically stop when, in fact, we weren't willing to stop, you know, spend the effort to stop a sailboat. For some communities, they welcomed when the Crystal Serenity came in. They saw that as an economic opportunity at Cambridge Bay. They said, this is great. Come on in, you know, respect our territory. Make sure that you're not overwhelming us. Give us notice. But yeah, we want to showcase our culture. We want to also see if people want to buy some of the various crafts that we're capable. Some communities said, no, you know, we just can't handle you. So in that context, uh, one has to be a little careful in terms of overcharacterizing that there is one voice on this. There's not. And so, um, you know, that's a bit of a colonial legacy when we turn around and say, okay, we understand that there is one voice that is saying this. That's not the case. Absolutely. Very well put, Rob. Okay, so the Northwest Passage is going to remain contentious, but we've kind of strayed a little bit from the two existential crises that we're facing, climate change and Russian aggression. As the ice melts, there's more opportunity for vessels to operate within the North. And this only sheds more light on how we've invested in the defense of our North. So, Rob, do you have any good news on that front? If we're being honest with ourselves, we haven't really done anything. We have a surveillance system that was last modernized in 1985. Now, let me ask you this. Would you be wanting to use a computer that was built in 1985, let alone defend against Russian hypersonic missiles with that? We are flying an aircraft that we bought in 1982. Are you driving a car that was built in 1982? Um, do you know anyone who drives a 1982 car? Yeah, so do you want to defend against hypersonics with uh, it in the shop all the time? So our fighter is 1982 vintage, full stop. That's not mince words about it. We have got a constabulary 
naval vessel, the Arctic offshore patrol vessels. The Navy is going to get six ultimately, and the Coast Guard will get two. That is something that has occurred. Our submarines are not at our ice capability. They too were built in the end of the 1980s. Seeing a theme here, there's even questions in terms of you know whether or not our runways and hangar system in the north can actually sustain our air capabilities. I think Canadians should be outraged. You know, I'm an academic. I'm supposed to be, you know, neutral on this. But I mean, just the fact that we are so vulnerable, it is going to be problematic. Yeah, that's not good. I don't know about you, but I do not want to be defending against hypersonic missiles with computers from 1985. So just for context, this interview with Dr. Rob happened back in March. So things have changed since then. The federal government has pledged to spend $30 billion over the next 20 years to modernize our defense systems in the Arctic. Now, the proof is in the pudding, and we'll see when that actually gets put into place. But currently, it's not entirely sure how fast that will actually happen. In June, they announced an additional $4.9 billion that was going to be spent on Arctic defense this year. And now it's kind of murky whether or not that was in the original budget for this year, but at least we're doing something. Actually, while I'm recording this right now, the NATO Secretary General Jans Stoltenberg is actually visiting Canada and visiting our Arctic stations to see what our preparedness is like and to showing that we're on the NATO front. We're all part of one team. Yet Canada is still lagging behind the rest of the NATO Arctic nations, with not providing 2% of GDP towards our defense. Whether that's a good thing or not, I'll leave up to the listener, but that's where we're at currently. So has that been enough talk about hypersonic missiles, nuclear problems? Maybe let's end on a positive note. How can water bring us together for peace? One example I'm thinking of is the Balkans. During the wars in the 1990s, these countries that share the Sava River Basin, so former Yugoslavia, had been at war with each other. So when the war ended and the first peace talks started, the question came up, what would be an issue that we can bring the countries together on that is not or not too much contested and that they would all have an interest to at least come together, sit around the table and talk? And water was identified as that issue. And the stability pact um, that the EU designed for the Balkans actually very much promoted the negotiation of a treaty over water and the setting up of a joint commission. And water was then the first issue that countries actually signed a, a treaty on beyond the peace treaty itself, and started to cooperate. And with that, not only promoted peace, but also managed to address challenges in the river, like there were remnants of war in the river that no country could have cleared themselves. They could address flood risks that were a huge threat to downstream countries. But by doing these technical measures, they actually built trust and, and they started cooperating again, meeting each other, visiting each other in, in their respective countries. So that really was a, an entry point, a bridge into cooperation more broadly. And that was uh, within less than 10 years between the war and then cooperating at this really legally binding level. Come on. Did you really think I was forgetting about this tune? Thank you so much to Dr. Susanna Schmeyer and Dr. Rob Hubert for being on the podcast this week. Make sure you're subscribed because you won't want to miss both of our deep dive episodes, E-1 
each of our full interviews with Dr. Susanna Schmeyer and our interview with Dr. Rob Huber. If you're interested in learning a bit more about Dr. Susanna Schmeyer's work, take a look at the IHE Delft Institute for Water Education website at un-ihe.org. And for the Water, Peace, and Security Partnership website, you can find them at waterpeacesecurity.org. Definitely check them out. There's a really, really cool understand portion where you can actually take an online course where Susanna will actually take you through Water, Peace, and Security, how it works, and just a much more deeper dive than this podcast episode. So highly, highly recommend it. For more information on Dr. Rob, I'll post some of the links to some of his research down in the show notes. Also, there'll be links to ArcticNet. As well, there'll be links to the North America and Arctic Defense and Security Network website as well. Very good resources to be able to learn more about these issues. I'm the host and producer, David Evans, and I'd just like to thank the rest of the team, specifically Paula Pullman, Lee Burton, and the rest of the Aquatic Biosphere Board. Thanks for all of your help. And to learn more about the Aquatic Biosphere Project and what we're doing right here in Alberta telling the story of water, you can check us out at aquaticbiosphere.ca. And we also have launched our new media company, ABN, Aquatic Biosphere Network, which you can find at thepublicplace.online and search for the Aquatic Biosphere Network channel, where we will actually be posting all of the video episodes that we're going to be creating this year. So tune in. They won't be out for the next little while, but very excited to start sharing video content as well of our interviews. Next week, we'll be releasing our deep dive interview with Dr. Rob, so you won't want to miss it. Make sure you're subscribed. You'll get to hear even more about Russia, the fishing that's going to be happening at the North Pole, China going to the Arctic, all of these crazy situations. It's a wild one. Get ready. It's super fun. If you have any questions or comments about the show, we'd love to hear them. Email us at conservation at aquaticbiosphere.org. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Leave us a review. It really helps us out. Thanks, and it's been a splash.